I just have to chuckle because this is a really, really challenging passage of Scripture. And also a perfect portion of Scripture to preach after this last week. After this last week where many of us went out and cast our vote and did our our right and our privilege as citizens of this country, this is a perfect text about the end times for them, the end times for us, the future being in God's hand. Because again, as we saw last week, the sum of Mark 16 is simply this. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Whatever is happening, whatever tribulation, whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever suffering is coming upon the people of God in any age, God has it in his hands. He has the end from the beginning. He has your end from its beginning. And as we saw last week in the first 13 verses, hard times will come. But as we unpack and untangle this quagmire of a text, know this, that when the hard times come, he will protect. God will protect his people. They are enveloped in his promises. He will protect us. And as a result, we need to be on guard. We need to be warned. So one of the underlying themes of Mark 13, the entire chapter, and its parallels in Matthew and Luke, is that the people of God, the children of God, would be warned. Remember, this conversation took place with only four guys, right? Peter, James, John, Andrew, asking Jesus, what in the world do you mean about the temple being destroyed? That is crazy. Jesus, you're doing crazy talk, so help us understand, and thus we have Mark 13. And so as we consider this extremely simple to understand concept of the abomination of desolation, perhaps we should just beware and be warned in the love of God, because the warning doesn't come as law, but as gospel grace to the children of God. Be warned. Have your eyes open at the end of Mark 18. Stay awake. What are our abominations of desolation, as it were? What are the things in our lives and in our world that fill that role? A question that I want to drive us as we jump into the text. So last week, I had about nine points. We got through two. Congratulations to me. Uh, It was two. uh, Be nots. Be not deceived. Be not surprised. Again, that sounds law-ish and command-ish, but Really, this text, in the context of its, of its warning, these are gifts and invitations for the reader to know what is going to happen. Last week, we saw false teachers, false gospels, more on that this week, and the significant and severe persecution of God's people. And if you read Mark 1 through 13, it feels a little bit rough. I mean, you're going to be handed over to councils and synagogues and governors and And families are going to be tearing each other apart, which was a a common problem for the early Christians, many of whom were martyred in the first and second century. Feels a little bit rough, that's true. But again, the main point of Mark 13, the entire chapter in Passion Week on Tuesday, Jesus is leaving the temple. He's moving toward the cross. Wednesday is a day of rest. Thursday will be the Passover, Friday the crucifixion, and he is ending the bulk of his teaching outside the temple, across the Kidron Valley, on the Mount of Olives, looking down on this wonder of the world structure, 
by having us know that even when the future is hard, it is held. Even when the future is hard for the children of God, for Christians, it is held in the hands of a sovereign Savior. So these passages of warning and prophecy and future are also an opportunity for us as the people of God to praise Him in our day, in our country, amidst our challenges and our tribulations, our anxieties and fears. Jesus is King. Now let me remind you of the words of the the teacher R.C. Sproul, who is but a fallible human being, but I think said wisely as he preached on this text, that like last week, uh, Mark 13 continues to be hard. And so we must continue to be humble. This is one of those texts where there are orthodox, historically orthodox Christian scholars who love Jesus and love the Bible who do not see everything eye to eye. Of course, what you'll hear this morning is right. Because I've read all of those and distilled them into the truth, right? But I just, I want us to be humble and I want myself to be humble here. I've really prayed this week, Lord, if there's anything that I'm going to say that isn't, that isn't true, would you just shut my mouth? <laughs> and at the same time, we have some, some very difficult things to get through where, again, scholars who love Jesus and the Bible debate and disagree. Is this text mostly about the future? Is it mostly about the past? Jesus says everything's going to come to pass in a generation. Is it mostly about the events leading up to and the events, the catastrophic cosmic events that would have been astronomically, supernaturally catastrophic to these folks of 70 AD? Or is it both and? And I want to commend to us this morning, because we're still here (laughs) 2,000 years later, that there, there is in this passage, as was very common, very common in the Old Testament prophets, what we might refer to as two horizons. A more immediate horizon of meaning and interpretation, which is true, and then a future horizon, which is also true. On the one hand, you know, can these passages be about the total end of everything? Well, no, because Jesus tells them to go and run to the hills. So clearly we didn't have the total end of things in 70 A.D., And yet we're also told in verse 19 that you're going to see something, a tribulation like you've never before seen. Is it it the emphasis of prophetic hyperbole or is it a future-looking view through the first horizon to the second of the end of the end? Again, I would commend to us in our humility in this hard text, it is both and. Uh, The Gospel of Mark was written in the late 50s AD or the early 60s. 1 Thessalonians that also deals with the tribulation written in the 50s. All of these things before 70 AD came to pass. And so understand that first generation of believers, most of whom were Jews ethnically that had put their faith in the Old Testament Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Savior, totally crazy for them to believe that a crucified Nazarene carpenter was the Son of God, but it it fulfilled and made sense out of the entire New Testament. Most of those folks would have understood this text from within their own framework as fulfilled in 70 AD. Again, we are still here, and so we know that there is both a past and a future meaning to Mark 13. But here's the point. It's hard, but it's core. Got it? See what I did there? It's hard, but it's core. 
I know a lot of you guys, I look around, I see a lot of people out here that I know listen to hardcore music. Most of the people in this section, for sure. <laughs> right? Hardcore music, you love it. All right. It's hard, but the core is the same. That means regardless of the scholars and their debates, faithful Orthodox Christian women and men who study this text see a few things that they all share in common, be it past, future, or the right way, both. God is sovereign. The Christian life is indeed full of challenges that we should expect, understand, that we have the space to grieve. And yet we are to keep our eyes open, trusting God, for he will come again. He will rescue his people. He will fulfill his promises. So this morning, three be nots. Last week was be not deceived and be not surprised. This week, be not afraid, be not unaware, and be not removed. Be not afraid, be not unaware, be not removed. So we begin with this first point, be not afraid. And again, if you were a Jew reading this text before 70 AD or around that time, you would have exclaimed, really? Because there are a whole lot of fearful and anxious making things happening in the world. And yet as much as Mark 13 is a warning, it is also a gift to anxious disciples who are living, they're a peculiar people in a particular place, in a country with rulers, seeing wars and rumors of wars and politics about. And just like us, they have questions and fears and anxieties. And so this text is a gift. It is a gift that they might trust God. What it is not is a crystal ball. It is not a crystal ball so that they can understand everything fully and in its entirety. As mentioned last week, at the end of Mark 13, Jesus himself says, nobody, not even the Son of Man, that is God the Son, knows the day or the hour. So it is a gift to anxious disciples, but it correlates to our trust and faith that God will indeed keep us, that we need be not afraid. Again, I, I believe this is apropos for our cultural moment, isn't it? There's a lot of anxiety out there. A lot of anxiety about everything. This last week, you know, as usual, half the people rejoicing, you know, the kingdom has come, the will is being done, all will be well. Half the people weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, sackcloth and ashes. And by the way, we get to be happy if our person won. We get to be a little bit sad if our person lost but we do not get to stake our claim on those realities because we are not here by accident that we might be anxious. Somebody asked the, you know, the, the scientist turned pseudo-philosopher Richard Dawkins one time you know, about his, his stance on morality and good and evil and you know, why we shouldn't ultimately just kind of pursue power and pleasure and get ours and he said, unfortunately, at the end of the day, I don't have a good answer for that because the universe doesn't care. So that's one option among many, but it's not the option that Mark 13 holds out to us. Here in Mark 13, we find rest because Mark 13, although it is a warning and a gift, it's also a question. Mark loves to do this. The Gospel of Mark, written primarily to Gentiles, primarily in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, Mark was buddies with Peter, he knew Paul, and he wanted to get the gospel out 
to people that didn't know and love Jesus. He wanted them to know there's good news. You don't, gotta, you don't have to earn your salvation. You don't have to be keeping you know, bread and incense to the altar every day and hoping that Zeus isn't going to you know, get mad at you and steal your girlfriend. There is rest in the kingship of Jesus and the sovereignty of God. So Mark 13 is a question. Where is our hope? Our rest. And because the answer to that is the king, Jesus is king, of the beginning and the end, and of the feeling of the end times as they come until the end of the end times eventually comes, because that is true, we as the children of God are not to disengage in this world. We are not to draw back and be repulsed by sinners. Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. That was you before you came to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. You're like, oh, I never did all those bad things. Well, yeah, then you have the worst, stankiest sin of all, self-righteousness and pride. We are to be grounded as we go forward in real life. And again, what I love about Mark 13, just generally, is that this is a text that falls into a category that I refer to as biblical realism, right? It's not just pie in the sky. You're going to become a Christian and have no problems and lots of money. Well, that wasn't how Jesus did it, so the sheep follow the shepherd. Sorry. Or let's just bury our head in the sand because the world is too evil out there. Those people out there. And then, and John and I have talked a lot about this, we end up having a posture to the very people God has called us to love of antagonism. Because they're scary non-Christians. If you say that, you're scary. All right, that we're, not, we're to be in the world and not of it. Not carelessly, not foolishly, but boldly. Not disengaged, but grounded. And this is a passage of biblical realism. Yeah, you're going to have challenges. There will be tribulation. There will be persecution. Not everybody you talk to about Jesus is going to go, oh, that's great. I'm glad you believe he's the only way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, thank you. That's wonderful. But there is rest. There is rest in the promises of God. And one of the main ways those promises manifest are by the Spirit. We're told in the first 13 verses that the Holy Spirit will come and will give gifts to the people of God. In particular, the Spirit will come in this instance and give words to God's people so they don't need to worry about what they're going to say when they are being asked about their faith. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study God's word and know the gospel. It means be not afraid. No matter where you are, the Lord will give you by his spirit the words you need to share the good news. Perhaps this is why one word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in Greek is the the paraclete, basically. Parakaleo is the verb. The one who comes alongside the called. So this is the promise of God. This is why we don't need to be afraid because the Holy Spirit, as we confessed, thanks to Athanasius, who is fully God, who is a person and united in full divinity with Father and Son, will empower and advocate and counsel for us. The Spirit gives real gifts. Again, words, but also rest. We're told in 1 Timothy that that the Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power in the gospel. And I think we need to just remember as God's people in times of Mark 13, maybe you feel like we're in a Mark 13 moment right now, that the will 
of the Father is to empower and advocate and counsel for you by his Holy Spirit as Jesus himself pleads his blood on your behalf and you will never be left alone and never forsaken. So again, as we jump into Mark 13, we can start right out of the gate with the gospel. It doesn't need to be the closing point of the sermon. Jesus has stood in our place. He has taken the great tribulation that we deserve. He has borne our sin, atoned for it. But even more than that, he gives us his very own righteousness. So that when you stand before the Father, you don't stand as one who is a a servant. You know, I got to beat myself up so I can get back into God's house. Hopefully he'll love me this time. And I come back into his house. Hopefully I can at least be a slave. No, because of the good news of the gospel, you are fully a son or a daughter by grace through faith because of what Christ has done. So Charles Spurgeon put it this way. You stand before God. Listen to this. Let your head explode a little bit. Give us something to clean up after service. You stand before God as if you were Christ. Do you treat yourself like that when you mess up? Sometimes we're the worst devil to ourselves. You stand before God, says Charles Spurgeon, not me, by the way, so write him an email. You stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Be not afraid when the tribulation comes. Jesus is king. The king is sovereign. In this text, we see the word will. I will do this. I will do that. The guaranteed, sealed, signed, and delivered future tense of God's will up to 20 times. That's a lot for one Bible passage. Be not afraid. Secondly, be not unaware. So we start now in verse 14 with let the reader understand. And I just want to summarize this by saying when the unthinkable happens, we have unquenchable promises. Be not unaware. Be not afraid. As you stand before God as Christ, because Christ stood before God as you. Now, be not unaware of what's going to happen. Again, in this context, speaking to those first Christians, Jewish ethnically, mostly, who put their trust and faith in their Messiah as they saw Jesus fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies. The world has challenges. Yeah, it's, it's fallen. <laughs> That's true for us. It was true for them. And I think it's important that we understand that, that basically everything that we read about in Mark chapter 13 happened at least to some significant extent. Again, there's a future sense, so not in its fullness. But basically everything happened to some significant extent in the book of Acts. And let me read this quick quote. Fears of war were widespread in the period between Jesus' resurrection and the fall of Jerusalem. Wars and rumors of wars. For instance, the revolt, uh, for instance, revolt almost broke out in Jerusalem in 40 AD when Emperor Caligula put a statue of himself in the Jewish temple. The earthquakes and famines of which Jesus speaks in verse 8 also happened regularly. Widespread famine broke out under the reign of Emperor Claudius, who followed Caligula on Rome's throne. 
An earthquake destroyed the city of Pompeii in AD 63. Many other instances of such natural disasters occurred as well. Therefore, in 40 years, one generation, all that Jesus predicted in some significant form did come to pass for these early believers. Each fulfillment leading up to the tragedy of 70 AD itself, that when it came, they might know, understand, and trust. So Jesus gave this to that first generation. So when these things came and they did come, they would know God has not left me alone. God will keep his promises to me. But then we get this crazy deal in verse 14. And this is only going to take me 78 minutes to unpack. Okay? (laughs) The abomination of desolation. What in the world is this guy talking about right now? When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. The abomination of desolation. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, scholars tend to think there's at least three possibilities here. And I'll tell you which one I think is the one. The first would be in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north comes to desecrate the temple. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, who was basically a puppet of the Roman Empire, who came into the temple and set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus. This to the Jews would have been considered certainly an abomination of desolation. Another mention of this perhaps is, as we just heard, Caligula, who came into Jerusalem as a conqueror, and exalted himself as a god. But I'm going to make the argument, and I think I'm right, that the worst instance of this happening that would have related to this group of people was when Titus himself, the son of the Roman emperor, came in and not only set up false worship in the temple, but destroyed the temple, and not only destroyed the temple, but destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. Titus was the worst by far. And what Titus did would have been considered heavenly catastrophe, supernatural divine judgment, worthy of all these prophetic hyperbolic words that are used in Jewish apocalyptic literature. So I think although there is a sense of fulfillment in the first two, the abomination of desolation that would have most resonated to these folks was what happened in 70 AD. The city is sacked and it is destroyed. Now, abomination of desolation. Let me sum up the meaning of that Based on the book of Daniel and Jesus' usage of it, there was great expectation in those days about the coming of Messiah. Here's what that means. And Jesus, you know, makes it personal. He ought not to be in that place. It means that someone is there giving false worship to a false God where they should not be. In the temple of God, which is the power and the presence of God, someone has come to set up worship of false gods. Now, N.T. Wright, I think, defines it pretty beautifully. I love his translations because you're used to abomination of desolation. But he actually translates it, and he's a Greek scholar, as the desolating abomination. 
So the one is the abomination who does the work of desolating the temple that is sacrilege and false worship. Basically, a horrible person who does horrible work against God in God's place. Or Grant Osborne defines the abomination of desolation as so, an appalling person or object whose presence signifies imminent destruction. So a person who is idolatrous, setting up idolatrous worship in the very place where God has promised his people that he will be present with them. That's what it means. And the reason that this is important is because, again, in 70 AD, the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. And even Jewish scholars agree. Even Jewish scholars agree, because some of you have been to Israel, and you know what's there now and what's not, and what's going on there now and what's not. Even Jewish scholars agree that the destruction of the temple and the city was functionally the end of an age. Some scholars refer to this as the end of the Jewish age, not the end of the Jews, because many Jews were getting saved. No, the end of the age of temple work, temple sacrifice, a specific place where God would meet his people in this sacrificial system. It was the end of all that because Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it. So we need to pause, I think, here. This is like drinking from a fire hose. I can talk faster if you want. Don't you wish you had a setting, like put it to 0.5? Too bad. I wish I had a setting for some of you too. (laughs) But I want us to just pause. Let's just take a deep breath. Okay, abomination of death. Let's just assume that I'm right for a second and there was a significant first horizon fulfillment of this in 70 AD. And let's assume at the end of the end of the end, there's going to be another significant fulfillment of it. Some world superpower antichrist type deal. But here we are in 2022. And a lot of people have been making a lot of predictions about the end of the world for a long time. And they're all wrong. Because here we are. So what does this mean for us? God used Rome, pagan Rome, secular Rome, abomination that desolates Rome to judge the entirety of of the Jewish temple system as it existed at that time. And a couple weeks ago, John preached on this. It was so bad in the temple, money-changing, self-righteousness, pride, that even widows were being eaten alive, metaphorically. It was horrible in that day. It was dripping with power. We're going to align ourselves with the Herods, the Egyptians, well, you know, politics and infighting. God used Rome to judge that system. So where are we? Let's just ask the question, where might we be prone to search for power, search for answers, search for strength outside of God's promises in our own day? Where might we be prone in our own lives to set up, as it were, desolating abominations? What are we prone to worship? 2022, America. How about the idol of mammon? Success, power, pleasure, decadence. Again, maybe not you, but I'm speaking in general terms here. So because we're still here, and this didn't all happen in 70 AD, I think the question that Mark is asking is still for us. 
Where in our lives and our hearts do we have any hope set up on the altar of God that isn't God, where he alone deserves worship, but we freely give worship to other things? And that is why the concept of faith in Mark 13 is so important. Trust. Because false prophets will come and they will prey upon, they are predators, they will prey upon what we want to happen what we think God should do. And we're most vulnerable to that when we're weak, sad, suffering, or things aren't going as we want. These are like the guys that come in and sell generators after a hurricane for five times the cost. You see, when we hurt, when we want healing, that's when we're most prone to listening to someone who isn't speaking the word of God, but speaking words that we might want to hear. Now, much can be said about this, but I, I think I'll be, I'll be brief. What, what happened in Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem was, was awful. Okay, so, so think about some war movie you've seen where it gets really bad. Jerusalem was under siege for four years. And if the Romans were good at anything... They were good at showing up and letting you know with the full might of their military power who is boss. And Titus had no love for the Jews. This rabble-rousing group of Semites that was always causing trouble on the very edge of the empire. Four years, Jerusalem was under siege and it got really bad. Thousands of people died of starvation. There were actually uh, stories, Josephus and other historians recount this, of people being forced, I know this is awful, okay, I know you're going to go to lunch after the congregational meeting, but being forced to eat their own children. Jew killed Jew, which was unthinkable. Four years, the Romans had these guys in the walled city with no hope of escape. And it was really bad. And so it makes sense that in that pain and turmoil, which in my lifetime, I have never even come close to experiencing, that wolves in sheep's clothing would enter in and try to profit off of that, would give easy answers. And so beware. Beware in your tribulation, challenges, and suffering. Beware of the places that you put hope for your future and the future of your children and your children's children, that those aren't anything outside of the promises made to us in Christ. Which is why faith and trust is so key to meeting the challenges of the abomination of desolation, even in our own day. And finally, be not removed. Okay, last point. Be not afraid, be not unaware to that first generation of what's coming in 70 AD and to all of us, what's happening now and what's coming in the end. Jesus is king. And finally, be not removed. Because even in this story, I don't know if you saw it, but I love this. Uh, we get the protection of God's people. God's promises always protect God's people. Again, maybe not in the way that we want, but 1 Corinthians 10 is pretty clear. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Temptation has seized you. Challenges are happening, but it's common. There's nothing new under the sun here. And guess what? God is faithful, Paul tells the Corinthians, and he will, through Christ, that is, through believing in the promises that Jesus gives us, provide a way out. And so we are to be a people not removed from the world. I love the way, again, that N.T. Wright puts it. We are called to live at the place where, God's, where the purposes of God and the pain of the world cross paths with each other. 
If you're a Christian in this room, that is your calling. Live at the place where the purposes of God and the pain in the world cross paths with each other. Not so you can be so strong and have it all together, but so that you can say, come and look at the risen Jesus Christ. Come and look at the cross where death itself is put to death and look at the resurrection where all sad things will be made untrue and everything will be made new. Be not removed because Jesus will protect his people. Now we we see it in the text when he tells them to go and flee to the hills. I never would have seen this if I hadn't gone into the commentaries because I absolutely know nothing about, you know, battlecraft. But when Jesus tells his children to flee to the hills, that's stupid. Again, I'm going to write a book called The Stupid Sayings of Jesus and Why They're All Right. (laughs) The stupid and crazy sayings of Jesus. This is dumb. Every single ancient Near Eastern general, commander, imperator, anyone who knew anything about war had read the books, knew that when tribulation was coming and an army was coming upon you, you did not run to the hills. That was a guaranteed way to get slaughtered. No, instead, (laughs) you were supposed to go to the walled city. And so what would have happened? Everyone would have fled to the walled city, the great walled city of Jerusalem. And one commentator puts it this way, the siege of Jerusalem was essentially, therefore, the first great holocaust of the Jewish people. 1.1 million Jews died in this siege. That's, That's almost... Almost 15% of the entire population, maybe more. And what's so striking is that as many more people than would have died otherwise. Why? Because when the tribulation began, the Jews all ran to the walled city. Yet as several historians note, including Eusebius, it was the Christians who survived. Because instead of running into the walled city, they went exactly where Jesus told them to go. They were saved. They were protected by these specific instructions that Jesus gave those people in that first generation. And so we are to be those who trust the instructions that Jesus gives us. And as we do, avoid both putting our head in the sand and pie in the sky to be not removed. We're told at the end of this text that that the Lord is going to send out his, his angels, his messengers, And so, yes, in one sense, we're looking at the end of the end of the end. But in another sense, we're looking at 70 AD because these messengers were the very people who had been saved from the tribulation. They went where Jesus told them to go. When Jerusalem fell, they saw all kinds of things in the clouds. They heard voices. They saw what looked like a chariot. These are all recorded by various Jewish, non-Christian historians. And then these messengers are meant to go out into the world and bring good news. Why did Jesus spare his people? Not only because he loves them and protects them, but he spared them because they are not to be removed from the world, but to go and take the good news out. So when you're hanging out with friends and having dinner and wine and cheese and talking and doing all the things, and people are worried because, oh man, what's going on in the world? And they're anxious and they're, they're fearful and maybe rightly so. Maybe they've got really tough stuff going on in their lives or their families. We are to be the very angels of God, the very messengers of this good news that yes, life means challenges, but God is sovereign, Jesus is king, and he will come again. 
And if he will come again, for us that means let's be here now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, a challenging, challenging text. It feels like it needs more time and consideration. Lord, I pray you would just open our eyes to see the beautiful ways that these prophecies came to pass for that generation so that that first generation was so encouraged and, and, and found rest and calm for their fear and anxiety because every word you spoke was true. And yet we know, Lord, that your gospel is going to go to all nations, every people group, to the very ends of the earth, and then, Jesus, you will one day come again as the great King and the great Lord to take to yourself all of those who trust in you. So, Lord, may we this morning be convicted out of your love, but convicted about those places where we have abominations of desolation, where we have abominations in our lives that desolate our relationship with you, where we have put our hope and our trust in false gods and idols. Convict us by your grace of those things and turn us to you, and that's exactly what you do at this table. This table is the opposite of a desolating abomination. It is the place where we come to be fed and nourished on your promises, and yet we, we never forget those great words from Charles Spurgeon. Jesus, you were desolated. The tribulation we deserved fell upon you, so that, Father, when you look at us, you see Christ, and when you see Christ, you see him standing in our place. May that be true for us as we come now to partake at this Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.